You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Hewitt. I am very honored to have another dear friend on as our guest today, Jane Rohde. Jane is a super awesome healthcare slash sustainability slash wellness global expert. Uh, Jane doesn't just work as an architect. Jane is uh, involved in things like the Center for Health Design, the GSA Sustainability Advisory Committee, uh, contributes to ASHRAE 189.1, helped with uh, Green Building Initiatives, Green Globe's ANSI programs, um, works on their technical committees, uh, contributed to lead supply chain task force. Uh, it, so many other things I could probably spend half of our, our time today telling you of her accomplishments. With that, I'm just going to uh, hand the, the floor over to Jane to say hi to our audience, and then we'll uh, jump into our dialogue. Hi, Jane. Hi, Daniel. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk. Yeah, you know, it's really fun. We were joking the other day, Jane and I were speaking, and, and we're like cousins uh, that, that don't see a lot of each other. So every time we catch up, uh, we, we have a lengthy dialogue about all these things that we're doing. And, and uh, what's really awesome is the amount of impact that Jane just continues to make. And, and in that regard, we're going to you know jump into my, my pillars on Build for Impact that include sustainability, resiliency, materials transparency, and wellness and then also anything else uh, in specific or particular that Jane would like to touch down on so uh, I'll double back on the beginning and in, do in sustainability obviously Jane's uh, a huge believer in sustainability and I'll let you share it in her words um, to touch down on some of the, the, the things in sustainability that uh, she'd like to share Jane Thanks, Daniel. So I really think that in looking at sustainability, I've been involved in that segment of the industry uh, through the lens of senior living and healthcare, which are other disciplines that we're really focused on. And to me, it's all integrated together in the sense that sustainability has to be looked at from a life cycle perspective. It cannot be looked at at a single attribute and make decisions on a single attribute. In being involved in healthcare, we've seen that even more prevalently. I was just on a webinar that that was discussing a group called the Durable Coated Fabrics Task Group that we work with uh, that has demonstrated unintended consequences when you really don't look at the performance characteristics. So everything from, we look at energy and water from a high performance perspective. So for sustainability and working in materials and surfaces, we also look at it from a high performance perspective. And with the lens of COVID-19, because I feel like we can't talk about anything without that lens, that we are even more critically aware of the need for performance, durability, product life cycle, as well as whole building life cycle. And I would say, too, the other hot topic, is, of course, is embodied carbon with global warming. And I think that uh, some of the work that the EC3 tool is doing with um, building transparency, we've been involved in that with some products. We're pretty excited about that. Uh, then we're also working with GSA and their Green Building Advisory Committee. They have a sub-task group that has been working on embodied carbon and, and emissions. And 
I love the fact that the group has come together and it's a hard topic to talk about and how to evaluate. But what I love about it is that we're looking at it from a life cycle perspective. So we've had conversations about EPDs and product life cycle. And then we've also had conversations uh, in detail about whole building life cycle and how to evaluate things like structural systems and assemblies and other types of systems that you're utilizing within a building and how to evaluate that to move life cycle from something that's a nice to do to something that you need to do and this is why and it will show and give you a platform for continual improvement. That's really great. Uh, you know, I think that you already led into some of the correlations between sustainability pillar and the resiliency pillar and you know, what we're looking at is making sure that we're building uh, projects that are effective for people, uh, responsible for the environment and resources, and, and also considerate on, uh, you know, almost unseen uh, events or things that, that are going to happen. Your thoughts on the, on the resiliency attribute um, that, that we're involved in? So what I'm seeing now is I've been reviewing and following the ASTM E60, and on that they have a draft document. It's a second round of draft that just came out, and we just provided comment to it um, on resiliency. And I think that resiliency, obviously geographic location is key in trying to define what the parameters or criteria could be for resiliency. But we added in uh, as a recommendation to add pandemic into the conversation because it has to do with emergency preparedness plans. A lot of what we've seen in senior living that has happened as a result of, of untimely deaths for many people, a lot of that has to do with the lack of preparedness and the lack of funding. So if you look at, for example, I'll use nursing homes as an example because they were such a hard hit uh, group of folks, both from a loss perspective as well as from a reimbursement perspective. They're reimbursed through Medicaid, which is a part of Centers for Medicaid and Medicare. And as a result of that, funding had been cut to them right prior to COVID-19. The industry is already taking care of a very high acuity residence uh, that was never really intended to live necessarily in long-term care for 10 or 15 years, but that's really what's happened. And so as a result of that higher acuity and having staff not having a living wage and having to work in multiple facilities and not having smaller groups of residents together, that created a whole, a whole load of issues that resulted in these deaths that occurred. And part of that is, I believe, is looking at the emergency preparedness plan of that because PPE has never really been made available or made available easily to the nursing home world. And that was what the staff needed to be able to be safe if they were going to be working in multiple facilities to make a living. So I think that when you start looking at resiliency, we always find that if you look at design, a design intervention, and you look at an operational intervention, when you combine the two together in terms of policies and procedures and the built environment, you get a much better outcome than if you're only doing one or the other. So I think that in this case that uh, the resilience is going to reinforce needs for emergency preparedness. If you look at what uh, some of the hospitals and facilities have done along the coast of Texas, for example, they were prepared when Harvey when Harvey hit because they had had previous hurricanes that allowed them to do their planning and they looked at emergency preparedness and they looked at 
floodgates and they looked at other ways of evaluating how that storm and surge and water and hurricane winds could impact them as a facility. And I think that they also had good lessons learned about what they hadn't thought to address, but those things are now being addressed. So I think that resilience has to be something that is not something that we just talk about. It needs to be implemented and it needs to include that emergency preparedness plan and how we evaluate that uh, to protect not just patients, staff and family members, but the whole communities as a result of that. Jane, thank you for touching down on a couple of other events related to resiliency, uh, especially in Texas. And really, I have to applaud Canada. Yes, Canada, our neighbor to the north, uh, my place of home, uh, as it were. Um, they actually wrote into code that now you have to account for a resiliency response within your design uh, of, of buildings, uh, you know, I can't remember what the correlation was, the minimum size, but uh, it, it's a requirement. In in really, it, it's so bizarre that we had to get to that point of stop the first cost dominance because you need to uh, be adequately prepared, uh, you know, for what's going to come. That that now it's written into uh, a requirement there. Um, and, and it's really great that they took the step ahead to do that uh, because, you, you know, it prepares uh, it prepares the thought at the beginning that this facility is going to have some longevity as well as contributions to society. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that uh, you and I met um, at Greenbuild, obviously, but just prior to that, the Living Product uh, Expo, and you did a great presentation there, uh, you know, talking about the correlation of embodied carbon and material transparency, something that you're also very uh, engaged and involved in. And, you know, in that regard, I'm really curious on your thoughts on how do we how do we get a balance in this one? Because, you know, obviously in my in my regular day life, I work towards helping entities uh, get to material transparency of their products in a manner that's going to also be uh, including the uh, health impact of the product on the end user. So, so your your thoughts on that? So material transparency is interesting to me because I think that most manufacturers would agree that material transparency is important. And we've seen that with you know, various things that Green Tag does. We've seen that with Green Circle. We've seen that with HBDs and, and the, their group. Um, and I think that when you're looking at material transparency, it has a couple of different caveats to it. So, so one is just what's in your product, right? But the other part is the social responsibility piece of where do those parts come from, right? And where do those components come from? So that starts to deal with the supply chain. And I think that um, all the green building rating systems are struggling with this. And I think product manufacturers are struggling with this because I think they want to have more information. And with the uh, demonstrations and other things that we've seen locally, as well as you know internationally, people are wanting to evaluate their whole perspectives from a socially responsible and equitable world. 
right? So when you start looking at that from the supply chain, it's really understanding not only where is it coming from, but what are the conditions in which it's coming from? And I think that these are, are bigger questions. I don't think we have answers for those, but I think people are talking about them. We're in the process of updating one of the product multiple attribute standards right now. And that's one of our topics and one of our groups is social responsibility, which seemed on the surface to be policies and procedures and making sure those are there and that they're updated and what do they mean and what do they say and, and how do they comply with the various WHO and, and different organizations that work internationally but it's a really a bigger conversation about equity. Uh, so I think that um, that's one part of it. I think the other part of material transparency is this, and I, I hate to say it, but I think it's a really a bad road to go through, is, is that red listing and deselection of one chemi chemistry or chemical or material is really super short-sighted because they're not looking at products from a life cycle perspective. Uh, this durable coated fabrics group that we've been working with, um, they demonstrated out that a project that was a lead gold project in 2014, fast forward two years, and majority of their durable coated fabrics have failed because they thought they were selecting a sustainable product. And it has totaled $9 million worth of rolling failures through healthcare systems. And instead of that $9 million being spent on equipment or additional staff or other things that could be used for diagnostics and healing people, it's being used and had to be reallocated from other building projects and other operational entity portions or departments uh, budgets to be able to replace this. That's not sustainable. You know, putting contaminated furniture into the waste stream is not sustainable. And, and so evaluating products by this single attribute perspective um, from a single chemistry I believe is really the wrong way to approach how you look at material transparency. Understanding what's in it's great. You know, uh, you and I talked the other day about the new ASTM standard that has the occupant exposure risk assessment as part of it. I think that's the direction to go. Look at what the certifications need to be when you start looking at what's in a product, what's in a product in terms of chemicals and, and other constituents that are in a product, but looking at it from an exposure and risk perspective. And I think that has really been the component that's been missing, that's being highlighted in Green Globes right now. And I know that that's how you evaluate your products with your, your various certifications. And so I think that that needs to become the mainstream because I think that's going to lead to more sustainable choices instead of them being based on information that's not science-based and it's not LCA-based. Yeah. Um uh, you know, thank you for touching bases on multi-attributes and, and a lot of contributory things. And, and you know, really, uh, um, Build for Impact isn't about me really uh, being a proponent for Global Green Tag. But one of the things that we do within that product health declaration, uh, the associated certification, the health rate, is really look about at every step of the process and, and for example, if you had a carbon black that was being used as a colorant in a product and it, it was rendered inert because of the manufacturing process, making it, uh, you know, con contained and not separable, that that won't be a, yeah, that won't be a platinum, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that won't get to be a platinum rated product 
because you have something that could cause harm along the process. But it still can, could get the certification and, and be a very highly rated gold product uh, as, a, as a result. And we're seeing the same sort of things with stuff like titanium dioxide, which is another colorant that's used uh, to make things white. So um, being, being super short-sighted at, at just excluding something very specifically that can be part of a compound that, that renders it useful... And, and inert, then then that's not a, a path either. And, you know, that's one of the big reasons why we follow GHS uh, and a lot of European and ISO standards in the work that we do at Global Green Tag um, around material transparency. Uh, we, you know, the, the, the big thing that, that we do is share all that data and information with the public. Uh, so it's not just for designers. The end users get to see that stuff. And I think that's a real big plus for manufacturers and, and even people selecting products, knowing that at the end of the day, somebody doesn't have to go hunt the yellow MSDS binder to find out about the product. Um, it, you know, the information is readily available. It's, it's not cloak and dagger. Uh, so, you know, without any more grandstanding on material transparency, I think what I've alluded to or what we started moving in the direction of is is wellness. And, you know, you've done so much groundbreaking work uh, within healthcare facilities that that you're my go to expert when I have questions about that. Uh, so let's let's think about wellness and and, you know, in fit well in the well rating system and uh, in other considerations. And, and how is that? affecting your healthcare work and then your thoughts on wellness uh, in, in general? Yeah, I think that it's the health and wellness is, is basically the caveat. So I can give a little background on how I got as involved in it is be, from sitting in the Green Building Advisory Committee for GSA, um, we used building health or health and wellness was one of our topics that came up two years ago. And I co-chaired the committee and task group that worked on that. And what was able to happen out of it, which I, I was just so pleased, is that we had, did a crosswalk that evaluated all the various certification systems, including some of the guidelines and codes like P100 and other things, DOD, things that are used in the federal government. And we were able to evaluate each of those, looking at which of them, whether it's LEED or WELL or FITWELL or Green Globes, whatever, and we're able to see where certain criteria when it comes to health and wellness, when you look at nutrition, physical activity, and indoor environmental quality, because those are really the three pillars I think that you would talk to when you're talking about um, evaluation of health and wellness within a space, that we were able to look at that and be able to crosswalk it so that um, it was evaluated so we kind of knew where we stood you know, as an industry. Um, and what happened from that is the SF tool, which is a sustainable facility tool that GSA um, creates. It's sftool.gov for those who would like to look it up. Amazing resource. It's an amazing resource. It has so much depth to it. And if you go under the learn tab, you can look up buildings and health and you'll see that there's this whole cross crosswalked area that you can choose a guiding principle, which is the federal guiding principles that align to health and wellness. And you choose that guiding principle, and based on that guiding principle, it'll tell you what in what certification has criteria or data or how to meet that, that guiding principle. 
And uh, so we update that periodically. We just updated it with the most recent FitWell. And um, I think we already did Well version two, even though it was in a pilot until August, I believe in August, it's going to be their, their current copy. Um, it was a, a beta copy before that. Um, but we've been able to uh, keep that that dialogue going about health and wellness. And I think it's one of those resources that a lot of times the design community doesn't know about. And, and so I would really recommend that. Um, and then from health and wellness, from a healthcare perspective, uh, we find that uh, FitWell and the criteria for FitWell is developed through the CDC. Um, and we've been working on some grant work that I told you a little bit about, some technology uh, to be able to tie research in that health and wellness world into Revit as a part of our applications. So looking at the API and how they're connected. So we did a um, phase one and we just were funded for phase two. And we're excited about this because I think it will put tools at the fingertips of the design professionals to try to look at healthier buildings and uh, a process that aligns, again, not just the built environment, but also the operators, uh, policies and procedures and potentially impacts to public policy. Because we think public policy, like, like you said about Canada, right? So here Canada is like a step ahead in the resilience world. And everyone should have a resilience plan, uh, whether they're calling it emergency preparedness or whatever they're calling it. Um, the Facility Guidelines Institute calls it the emergency conditions. And they're doing a whole series of white papers and going to come out with a new guideline uh, based on this for all types of healthcare settings. And so it'll have some of those components of not just the building itself, but the health and wellness and the operational procedures and policies. So I think that, that that's, that's part of where we go you know, with health and wellness. And I, I also think, too, that this opportunity of having sustainability overlapping with health and wellness, so the new uh, Green Globe's existing building uh, that's getting ready to roll out, it's in beta right now. I'm really excited about it because it includes health and wellness information and the built environment information, and we've been able to cross-link it so that we can evaluate it and how it would work. For example, if you wanted to get FitWell certification and you wanted to get Green Globes certification, how those two could fit together. And we used Well as a reference as well. We've looked at all their evidence. We we've, we've have a new methodology for evaluating research and evidence. And then we think the follow-up component to that is coming up with an electronic way to evaluate post-occupancy evaluation. Because what's happening is we've always had post-occupancy evaluation and it's kind of loosey-goosey and there's not really a standard that people follow. We'll come to find out in the uh, old days, I will say the 1970s through early 2000s, there's actually, uh, IFMA actually worked very closely on developing a POE process. And so this was fascinating to me because I was trying to figure out what happened to this pre-occupancy and post-occupancy processes and where did it go? Why did the system stop being used? And I think actually it was the sustainability, this is my theory, this is, I don't know if it's true, but it's my theory that about the time sustainability became of such importance, it kind of diminished the functional side of things. And I think inadvertently at some points that performance and functionality, which are your basics, were left behind for other information that was the new shiny object of sustainability. So now we're finally seeing this kind of coming full circle, people looking at life cycle more closely. And now here we have an opportunity to be able to platform something like a post-occupancy evaluation, comparing it to where you started with your functional program in the beginning and pre-occupancy. So, so to me, that is going to help us with health and wellness because that's going to 
help us know what works and what doesn't work because we've never really had a very good way of reporting out because people don't like to tell on themselves. Some In healthcare, long-term care particularly, people are a little more sharing about their lessons learned. But I have found that um, for the most part, people don't want to tell on themselves when something didn't go right, right? So this allows us to make that information generic and nobody can say, oh, that was so-and-so architect that did that project and that didn't come out so good. So instead of doing that, we'll be able to genericize the information and still be able to use the data, but it doesn't impact the individual firm or the project or the facility or whatever, but we'll have the data that we can then reevaluate and put back into a database. So we're very excited about this opportunity because this will, I think this will move things forward. So we've been working on a grant with the ASID Foundation um, and it's on the, the mechanics of the mechanical part of the POE and pre-occupancy. And then the goal is, is to take that information and be able to use our phase two, some of our phase two funding to then platform that. So we've got a lot going on, but it's exciting. Yeah, uh, you know, I want to thank you, Jane, for having such a wide focus on on the different rating systems so often. And we saw this in the early days of, of rating systems that, you know, they weren't really collaborating. And and now we've got a, a situation where we're seeing more more willingness to contribute and more opportunities to collaborate. You know, uh, Green Globes is a really great rating system. You know, LEED happens to be the biggest on the planet, but Green Globes is a really great rating system. And I really like some of the attributes of, the, of their existing building program where they're really inclusive and considerate of stuff. And I, I like the assessment uh, part of it. You and I are both Green Globes assessors. And, and that's uh, for the audience's know, uh, know-how um, or knowledge, I should say. That's how we ended up uh, meeting initially. And, uh, y- you know, so Living Building Challenge is the most, uh, you know, stringent uh, green building rating system on the planet. And I really think that the minimum is, you know, somebody who would just like to do better but hasn't formally done anything. We happen to be at that leading edge in the top 25% or 10% of, of all projects related to, you know, resource and performance. And where uh, I think Green Globes has been very successful as, has been reaching to be more inclusive. Uh, and, you know, truly that's where, we, where we're going to see this big holistic success is when we're looking at at being doing our best to be you know restorative and contributing to a to a brighter future you know as a as an impact um you know and it's funny because i don't think that you ever look at things in isolation and i think that in healthcare you can't right because everything has an impact right down the road right so so i guess healthcare thinking and critical thinking has helped that process and designs a an alternative thinking kind of uh, discipline as well. But I, I do think that this opportunity to be able to not separate environmental from health and wellness, because I've seen people try to segment it or verticalize it, you know, and put it in silos. And to me, it really is all about the overall outcome and whether it's the person or the building. And I think that that 
being in long-term care all these years and trying to push the envelope of trying to get person-centered care as the norm instead of the exception, because it's still the exception. And COVID-19 gives us that opportunity to push it and see what we can do. Like, see, if we're not going to change, now is the time for change. And I think now we can actually get some traction and change because people are going to demand it. And they, they've seen the outcomes of what we've had so far as a system. So I think that when we look at things more comprehensively, it gives us amazing opportunity for change. And to me, it's health and wellness is just as much as part of resilience, is just as much as part of uh, global warming is just as much as part of sustainability and environment and then the social responsibility piece. So I think as you're starting to wrap them around, they're all like you pull one thread, you know, and it and it pulls another thread and it pulls another thread. It's going to impact the entire fabric of what we're looking at. And I think that that is is incredibly important for people to understand. Uh, don't close it down, open it up and and look at where the connective points are, because we've been calling it um, connect the dots because we think that there's so many different ways to connect different disciplines with one another to start to look at connecting the dots and making things more impactual that can help all the different disciplines, but also help with overall life and outcomes. You know, whether that's the planet you're looking at or it's a, a vulnerable resident, little older person that you're trying to protect. So I think that there's a huge opportunity right now and, and I hope people start to embrace it. You know, I hope people aren't afraid of it. I hope people embrace it because I think there's huge opportunity for change and people know that and can, can embrace it and be part of that movement of change. I, I completely concur. You know, I, I think the reason I came up with the, my four pillars uh, in, in the dialogue around that is that in order to be comprehensive and have a, a, a true solution, you stepped away from thoughts that there was potential silver bullets. And, you know, and we looked at making sure we had alignment and, you know, moving in parallel directions. Um, there, there's not a, a, a single source that that makes all this stuff, uh, you know, an, an instant success. It's a combination of things. And I really uh, am appreciative of your work in, in healthcare because it's brought all of these perspectives into focus. And we've looked at the, the overlaps as a result. And I think that those overlaps, I always look at it that the overlaps is where change can occur. And a lot of it is don't be defensive. I mean, we've, We've found that, you know, in talking about chemistry, for example, people get defensive. I'm like, there's no need to be defensive. Chemistry is chemistry. It's science. It's going to show you what works or what doesn't work, um, whether it's a migrating molecule or it's use a less caustic disinfectant to do disinfecting after COVID-19, right? It's easier. It's an easier virus. Caustic that have the impact to the person applying it and the, the, the person occupying space. But we need chemistry. We're our body. We need to be able to various communities to gather. Uh, and, and I think that collaboration is really close down right now. It's going to be way more able because the collaboration is where we need new. Options. We're going to do 
we all have solutions um, based on people because of that money and, and because of the experience with them too. I mean, we're starting to see and and I kind of change has taken way longer here. But it's, kind of, it's it's good to see. It almost gives you a little bit of heart hope that our future is going to be. So um, in, in closing, what I want to do is just really thank Jane for taking time out of her crazy busy day to share, you know, a wealth of information with our audience here on Build for Impact. I'd like to potentially, uh, you know, get a panel discussion around some of these key health impacts uh, you know, now that we're seeing more focus and uh, more results and more information on uh, our current pandemic, um, it'd be great to have some of our experts weigh in on that here on Build for Impact. And, and I'd like to invite Jane back um, for for that if uh, if you're available, Jane. Yep, would love to. Um, I think that this is our time for all of it that we've been talking about. And so I'm, I'm happy to talk with you anytime. Um, you are like a cousin. Uh, <laughs> we, it, it's great to talk with like-minded people too, because I think it helps support all of us during, uh, you know, being feeling a little bit more isolated than we'd like to be. Uh, so pleasure always, Daniel. Again, thank you. And thank you to our audience for Build for Impact. Uh, tune in to this uh, episode, send us questions and comments and uh, what you'd like to see in future episodes. Again, thank you to, to everyone. Have a great day.